Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, how does a Ford government function when not boxed in by external crises? We'll reflect on the year that was in Ontario politics. Federal Ethics Commissioner has ruled that uh, Trade and Small Business Minister Mary Ng breached the Conflict of Interest Act in relation to two media training contracts awarded to close personal friends. Daniel Chai, who was a lecturer at Communication, Culture and Information and Technology at the University of Toronto, will join us to talk about that. And as we head into uncertain times, how critical is the latest Ontario economic growth strategy? Spoiler alert, very. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Winding down governments, of course, uh, the uh, you know the federal guys are taking some time off now. They had their Christmas parties yesterday. And uh, Queen's Park is going to be shut down probably for uh, quite some time, until Family Day, we were told, at least until Family Day anyway. But it's time for some reflection, I guess, as you head toward the end of the year. And it's been quite a year politically, I guess, both in T- Queen's Park and Toronto and certainly uh, in Ottawa. And uh, Matt Gertie writes about this on uh, a TVO website, uh, tvo.org. Uh, the Ford government is back to its pre-pandemic normal. And it's a, it's a very introspe- an interesting piece. Uh, and Matt joins us on the program to talk about this. Uh, first of all, uh, best of the season. Merry Christmas. And I hope you guys are <laughs> doing Christmas. well in the, in the Gurney household, Matt. Um, yeah, we know we'll be celebrating. We'll be hosting. So that's uh, about 20 people just under who will be coming over. So that's something to look forward to. Um, oh. That is a mixture of total sincerity and extreme uh, sarcasm when I say something to look forward <laughs> to on that front. Um, I Yeah, no, it, it's, I was just saying it with, with Alicia before I came on, like it's been a very busy news season. Normally, we don't have this much news this late into the season. Yeah. Which makes it easy for guys like you and I, but I confess, I don't know about you, Bill, I'm ready for a break. Uh, yeah, I think we're looking at the same thing uh, sometime between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, just as the government's uh, try to shut down for a while, it's always good to just kind of hit the reset button. But I, I was fascinated by your piece, uh, Matt, because it, you talk about the Ford government, of course, uh, but but there's also a, a, a kind of an analysis on how government works and, and, and the parameters in which government works, which uh, I think is very insightful in, in light of what's gone on over the last little while, but how much power they really have to change things. And, you know, if we change governments, are we really going to get a change? Of, of how things are going to be done and uh it's it's a difficult question to answer yeah i mean let me lay out for the listeners bill kind of where this came from so i, I wrote a column last week about uh merit styles being the new ndp leader and how in in my oh so technical language i described it as weird that no one had really run against her and one of my colleagues had said to me well if you think that's weird you must think what the ford's doing lately is really weird And my column was basically a a playful reply to that going, no, I actually don't think it's weird at all. But that's when I got into the serious issue here where I kind of proposed a theory that during good times, you will see governments act the way they want. You will see the personal goals, the personal quirks, even the personal failures of politicians manifest themselves when times are good. Because when times are good, that's when they have the ability, the time, the energy to focus on what they actually want to be focused on, for for better or worse. When times are bad, we start seeing kind of uh, a squeezing out of all those irrelevant things like personal priorities, quirks, goals. And what you end up with, instead of political leadership from partisan guys, you end up with basically crisis response by bureaucrats. And... As I wrote in the column, I always think that in the aftermath of a crisis or even during a crisis, we kind of have two competing strands of ego. 
the guys in charge truly believe that no one else would have done as better as they did. And the guys in opposition honestly believe that they would have done way better than the guys who are actually running it. And I don't think that's the case. And I, I use the pandemic as a specific example. I think Doug Ford was slow to realize the pandemic was going to be a problem. And I think conservatives in general who aren't particularly good at kind of understanding the proper role of government power. I think they're good at understanding where government doesn't belong, but I don't think they're good at understanding what government is for. I think they were slow to react and slow to comprehend that this was something that the market wasn't just going to sort out for itself. So maybe we lost a couple of weeks at the beginning, but after a couple of weeks, despite all the screaming at the government and people, especially among the opposition going, Oh, look at these evil conservative premiers. One of my theories is actually that our pandemic response at the provincial level would have looked pretty much the same, no matter what party was in charge, not because there aren't differences between the parties, but because in a true crisis, the bureaucrats end up running it because they're the only ones who actually know what they can do and what they can't do. And uh, you're right. You have to really separate the rhetoric from the from the reality here, I guess, when, when you, you look at how these governments respond. And, and I agree, by the way, with the assessment of Ford. I think he was slow to act, but he, he eventually came around. And, and, and if you look at Ontario's plan, it was very similar to Nova Scotia's, very similar to BC's, et cetera. It's variations on the same theme. There's only so much you can do in a circumstance like that, isn't there? Yeah. And I, th I think there's two reasons for that. I think one of them is sort of a pan-Canadian issue that our healthcare systems, generally speaking, tend to look like each other. They're mm -hmm. similar systems designed for similar populations funded in similar ways. And that means they have, again, not with total uh, quality, but in general terms, we're looking at the same strengths and the same weaknesses. And I, I think the other issue is that in, in a crisis such as the, especially the onset of COVID, the, the opening months here, all of the responses were going to look basically the same because the challenges were basically the same and we were facing them with basically the same systems. But I would even go a step further and I would say there was only maybe one kind of possible response. And I know that, you know, uh, things like lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine passports became increasingly controversial as time went on. I get that. And I think that's partially justified. But at the very beginning, I never really heard anyone say what the alternative here is. And I think that is why a guy like, you know, whether it was, you know, Premier Andrea Horvath in a universe where history unfolded a little bit differently or Premier Doug Ford in the universe we actually live in, I think their immediate reaction was going to look mostly the same because they only had a few tools to use and only a few ways to use them. Well, and we saw that, and you and I in, in this business, of course, uh, you know, we'll analyze and criticize as, as the case might be in some of these policy decisions. But if you were to put the question to these people in opposition, for instance, say, okay, how would you have done it differently? If they were being honest with it, Matt, they both would have said, not much different, really. Uh, no, maybe this a little bit different, but not wholesale changes like that, because as you say, there are only so many options available. We saw kind of the ultimate example of this in the last provincial election in June. Now, obviously, the worst of it was behind us, so it wasn't a totally fair test. But I really watched with interest to see if either of the uh, opposition parties, the Liberals or the NDP, would really try to steer a different path. Like, were they going to make any bold proposals of, and here is what we will do differently than what we are doing right now, 
and they basically didn't. The NDP didn't really. They talked uh, in their platform. They talked quite a lot about healthcare and rebuilding it and reinvesting in it. But that was kind of it in terms of their direct commentary on the pandemic. The liberals did have like one day of the campaign cycle where they talked about making uh, COVID-19 vaccination mandatory for elementary school kids. And I guess that pulled terribly because they kind of mentioned it once, never brought it up again. And then they got completely lit up at the polls. So I, I think that's kind of an example of whether or not you're dealing with the reality imposed on you by external events, something like an emergency or whether or not you're just dealing with, you know, political reality of an exhausted, weary population, all of the parties wound up basically in the same place. They don't like to they don't like to admit that. They like to pretend no. that it's, you know, their way or, or or the apocalypse. Vote for me and never those other guys, because it matters. But on this front, on the COVID front, and certainly kind of the post-COVID front, all the parties were basically on the same page, and it's because reality forced them there. There's another angle to uh, to the piece you wrote uh, about Ford specifically that I wanted you to touch on uh, about how he has governed and and there's a lot of analysis about that you know the first term versus what he's done so far and and as you mentioned in the piece that there's one common characteristic that seems to be pretty consistent through the the times that Doug Ford has been premier and it's, he likes to make big announcements he, you know grand shows I'm going to build this highway I'm going to do this I'm going to uh, uh, but then big retreats usually uh, with a lot of this stuff anyways there's a pattern here isn't there yeah there is and i think you know one of the reasons i spent so much of my column talking about how in an emergency all governments sort of can only act in very narrow ways it was to make the point that we've only ever really seen i mean doug ford has been premier of this province for over four years now but we've seen him kind of operating as a not emergency premier for like 16 months, maybe a little bit more than that. I guess closer to 18 months. We've never really had much of a chance to see Doug Ford not in crisis mode because there was the pandemic and then the pandemic began to ease. And now we have a war, an economic crisis and a healthcare system struggling with the post-COVID fallout, right? So an opportunity to see Doug Ford in non-crisis mode is something we actually haven't had a little bit of. Uh, we have had a lot of, I should say. We've only had a little bit of it. And during his first, uh, first year, Doug Ford really swung for the fences on some files. You know, he wanted to make big, bold changes. Uh, you know, the, the big example from his first year, obviously, was blowing up Toronto City Council in, in, yeah. the, in the immediate run-up to a municipal election campaign. That blew up in his face. He had a caucus meltdown. He had court battles. He ultimately won. Like he, he was able eventually to shrink the size of Toronto City Council. But I think you know, people barely remember anything that was happening um, before COVID. But you'll remember, like at the one year mark of Ford's first term, his government was in crisis. He had had to uh, replace his chief of staff. There had been rumors of a caucus revolt. And a lot of the political uh, analysts were writing the Ford government off as dead on arrival, you know, mm -hmm. and. Then the COVID crisis happened. It lasted, you know, basically three years, or give or take. And now that we seem to be coming out of it, we're seeing Ford returning back to that big brash way of doing things. He used the notwithstanding clause on QP, and then he retreated. He brought in huge, strong mayor powers, and he didn't retreat on that one. That one got pushed through into law. Now yeah. we're looking at the green belt. That's very controversial. As I said in my column, right now we've had three big moves by Ford in the recent months. One has been a retreat. One he's stuck to his guns on. And I guess what happens with the green belt will 
break the tie. We'll give us a two out of three split one way or the other. And we're not going to find that out until I would think uh, late winter, early spring anyway. Because yeah, that's, sounds about right. We're not right. going to be back to work for a while. Uh, as I say, a thought-provoking piece as always, and uh, our, our listeners can check it out at tbo.org. Uh, Matt, as, I appreciate the time again. As always, I, I've had a great conversation with you through the uh, last uh, three years, I guess, since we've been doing this uh, pandemic stuff anyway. Uh, have a great holiday season with you and your family and look forward to our conversations into 2023. Absolutely. Me too. Best to you and yours, and I'll catch you next year. You betcha. Matt Kearney, columnist for the National Post and, of course, for TVO. And uh, always insightful stuff about what's going on, especially in the uh, political scene in Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A member of the federal liberal cabinet has apologized after the federal ethics commissioner concluded that she actually broke the rules uh, awarding contracts to friends of hers. Uh, Trade Minister Mary Ng says she takes full responsibility for her actions. At no time was there any intention for anyone to benefit inappropriately. My efforts fell short of my own high personal standard for transparency and accountability, which Canadians have a right to expect from their elected officials. I'm sorry, and it won't happen again. Uh, that was, of course, question period in the, in the Commons, and it, you know, it gets a little crazy from time to time. The Prime Minister was asked about this as well. Uh, and said that uh, he's accepting her apology. I don't think there's any more action going to come of this. I wouldn't think so anyway. But what about this from an ethical standpoint? Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Chai, who is a lecturer of communication, culture, information, and technology at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you. Uh, talk to us about this from an ethical standpoint. What I found interesting about this is the uh, the ethics commissioner, uh, Mr. Dion, has has investigated this, ruled on it, and said that uh, that Minister Ng actually breached the Conflict of Interest Act. Uh, but there's no consequence of any uh, nature here. No no penalties, etc. It's 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 sort of like a, a, an act or a law or a guardrail that, that doesn't have any consequences. Well, what's really interesting is the uh, powers of the Ethics Commissioner of Parliaments of Canada. Um, it's fairly limited to fines and uh, penalties, such as what you mentioned is basically notations on the record saying that this person violated uh, some ethics uh, standards for parliamentarians. And what's interesting is that uh, you, you can see that there's been, a, I guess, a perception or shift in mores or ethics because... 20 years ago, you had uh, Art Eglinton, who was a uh, then defense minister, do the same thing. Uh, He shoveled a $36,000 contract in 2002 to his former girlfriend's communications firm, and he resigned because of that breach of ethics. And so uh, it seems like uh, the government um, is disregarding what was the standard uh, then, and uh, basically thinks it's appropriate just to say uh, sorry and uh, hope uh, people forget about it. Uh, it's, that's opening up a whole different Pandora's box, I guess, because we've talked about how standards have eroded over the last little while, whether it's personal standards, business standards, political standards, whatever the case might be. And and I think the Eggleton example, I think, is, is very germane to that discussion. Uh, and that was the that was the, the, the rule, not the exception with Eggleton, wasn't it? I mean, that if, if you were caught you know, with doing something out of out of line with what the job function was, uh, invariably you lost your job. And interesting in this case, uh, the uh, minister Ng, her uh, her friend uh, Ms. Alvaro, the one that received the the money for the contracts. Uh, in fact, it was twice. 
uh, was two different occasions that uh, they she received uh, communications contracts, and she's a, a Liberal Party insider. Now, what's really interesting is the rules don't prevent a um, contract. Well, in the context of government money, uh, Canadian taxpayer money, yeah, it's a big problem. But uh, the Liberal Party itself can hire these, uh, you know, these flunkies, these uh, politicos. And uh, do whatever they want with their own political money because it's paid by donations by partisans by people who support the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are if when you're a minister you have your own nonpartisan communication aides. These are individuals that are there who are who are meant to do messaging. They're paid by Canadian taxpayers, but they are they're also meant to be uh, you know in theory neutral. Um, government officials that do that that work for the minister. So it's not like she had a lack of resources. Uh, what it was is a basically a flagrant violation and I th- of ethics rules. And at the same time, I think what we're seeing here is an acknowledgement by this government that uh, they're willing to flout the rules. Do they? get a, a clear understanding of, of what ethics violations are and, and, and what they can and cannot do when it comes to conflict of interest. And and I'm not trying to be flippant about that. I mean, the prime minister, of course, uh, uh, was uh, accused of the same thing. And actually by the, the commissioner, uh, uh, con- well, not convicted, but I mean, he was found to be guilty. Of course, we know about the trip with the Aga Khan, et cetera, a few years ago now. Uh, but it, this just brings that back up again and brings it to everybody's mind again. Uh, and it, oftentimes, it, it, as you mentioned, these days, it's, they're just dismissive of it and say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, knowing that there aren't going to be any major consequences, uh, the element of, of the Eggleton situation was basically public opinion that forced them. But that doesn't seem to be much of a factor anymore. Yeah, exactly. I think we what we're seeing is uh, in the era of social media where what's true can be false and what's false can be true uh, with the nature of everything that's happening uh, with disinformation and so forth. And also people's attention spans are a lot shorter. We're in a TikTok uh, generation where 20 second videos is basically what where people get their information. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that because uh, uh, especially for younger demographics, that's, you know, they get a lot of actual uh, information um, and not just entertain in entertainment from uh, social media like TikTok. That uh, because of that shift in information processing and uh, it, governments do take advantage of it and politicians take advantage of it because of the short uh, cycle. And so it's one of those uh, interesting uh, phenomena that. You, you have an ethics breach. Uh, clearly, this, this would have been a different standard. Uh, same thing with a lot of different things that happened 20 years ago. You know, if a politician got caught having an affair or some other uh, situation like that, that would be the end of their career. And now it's like par for the course. But at the same time, I think the issue is this. The parliamentarians, they, get, they do get briefed on uh, how they should spend their money. Uh, ultimately, ignorance is no defense. You, simply saying "I didn't know" is no excuse when it comes to a member of parliament. So, uh, at the end of the day, the responsibility is there. Uh, the ethics uh, rules are there. Uh, what we need to do, I think, uh, is empower the ethics commissioner with greater uh, penalties and even have uh, contempt powers 
to ensure that parliamentarians take it very seriously, even if they believe public opinion or public attention spans may be short. Um, I think also the other thing is we we just have to have more of a um, mindfulness by the public as well that, uh, you know, uh, maybe there should be outrage. And if the standards have changed, this says something about us as a society, I think. Well, it does, and it, uh, maybe even about our view about elected officials as well. I mean, because when we've talked about this in the past, not necessarily with uh, with Minister Ng, but with others uh, who have uh, done this, the response I hear from an awful lot of the people, Professor, is, well, they all do that anyway. What's the big deal? Uh, it's only $5,000 out of a multi-billion dollar government budget. So what, you know, move on, uh, which is not really the attitude we should be taking. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I also teach business and uh, you're setting up norms, right? Because what's happening is if you, if you steal a little bit or you'd break the rules a little bit, that means the big, the big, the big uh, violations are not that far away. Um, And so I think you have to have an approach where um, everything is treated as um, serious. And, um, and at the end of the day, you know, I think, it has to be kind of cumulative as well. I think we know from past experience that uh, when governments, it always seems to be a factor of uh, a multitude of violations that kind of build on themselves. And I think that's where you kind of need escalating penalties with the ethics commissioner. You need to empower parliament to the extent that, um, you know, you can't just brush off a one-time thing, and each time it happens, it has to get worse, even if these things are minor in terms of the penalties. So I think that's one of the sort of a, a flaw in the current ethics system. Um, but I, as I said before, the rules are meant to be there, and they're meant to to uh, ensure good behavior and to foster trust and respect in the parliamentary system by. Uh, Canadians, and uh, ultimately what we're seeing here is a flagrant disregard. What I find fascinating about this uh, is not too long ago, the Ethics Commissioner, uh, Mr. Dion, was before this committee, uh, and a couple of the, the members on the committee suggested that there should be some sort of, uh, of uh, financial penalty uh, for you know, people that are found to be in violation. And he said no. Uh, and it's, it, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he says no, this is not the right time, which, which begs the question, when is the right time then? Uh, I think now is the right time. I I don't understand the logic behind that, other than the fact that, um, you know, the ethics commissioner the, himself uh, is empowered by Act of Parliament. They, uh, re- I mean, I guess the only thing is they do receive money from uh, government, uh, and so I don't, uh, you know, there's there's an issue there of in maintaining the independence. You should. You should empower them just like you would uh, the Auditor General. Uh, they're there meant to be a bulwark against these types of offenses. And um, in fact, there's no reason to delay it other than the fact you're a minority government. And maybe uh, with the Liberals being propped by the NDP, there isn't really the the political will to change uh, the regulations on that and to give stronger powers. Uh, and maybe that needs to be changed. Maybe one of the political parties has to come out and say, we will strengthen the rules. We will empower the commissioner and we will fund them and we'll replace this individual with somebody who can enforce the rules. What I find galling about this, though, 
I'm sure many other people do as well, uh, is, is the nature in which these things happen. It's not as if there was a gray area here, uh, specifically with the second, because as you mentioned, there were two instances where uh, this money was awarded to, to her friend. Uh, the, the second one, about $5,840 contract. She, the minister, Minister Ng, made that decision herself, uh, we're told, according to the information that the uh, ethics commissioner had. And, and that kind of reminded me, of course, of former finance minister Bill Morneau and the WE Charity. Uh, <laughs> giving preferential treatment to the WE charity after he, you know, donations, et cetera. Even if you only have a cursory knowledge of conflict of interest, uh, that's conflict of interest. I mean, there's not really too much wiggle room here, is there? No, there's not. In fact, one of the unfortunate things is uh, the degree of transparency. So all these contracts need to be, um, you know, documented and, uh, a lot of times the reason that we find out about these uh, contracts is usually there's a whistleblower and the opposition MP files a complaint. So, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we're not completely sure um, the extent to which uh, various ministers are declaring these relationships, including uh, the prime minister himself. Like how many times does he... Uh, you know, uh, go on helicopter rides to private islands by very wealthy uh, uh, industrialists and uh, powerful individuals. So, I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, there, there's a responsibility on self-declaration. Um, and so, you know, it's also about uh, moderating yourself. I think what's interesting about having these rules in place is you've, you have to kind of see people's character from it. If, if this is a, a type of behavior it kind of shows, I guess, a, a kind of arrogance that people think they can get away with it and uh, or the rules don't really apply to them or this relationship doesn't really, you know, yeah, we're friends, but, uh, you know, we think we can skirt it because, you know, I am the, I, I happen to be a, a, a minister. Or I happen to be the uh, the prime minister. So I think what we need to do is really empower uh, the rules and allow the commissioner to issue, as you said, financial penalties and uh and make them feel it you know pay back that taxpayer's money uh we worked really hard for it you know it's not like we want to be in a situation where we're down a trillion dollars in debt uh have all this spending have all this mismanagement if they're going after people on serb we should be going after the minister and the prime minister or whoever when they break the rules and ethics well, as the old saying goes, with power comes responsibility. And, uh, you know, when you hear stories like this, and we hear them constantly, of course, at the federal, provincial, and even municipal level uh, when it comes to elected officials, uh, it's it's no wonder why they seem to be so low on the, on the approval and popularity ratings. Uh, elected officials, they, we've certainly lowered the bar for them. And, and that's an ugly consequence, I guess, of what's going on. Professor, thank you so much for this. really enjoyed the conversation today. Okay, thank you. Take care. You too. Professor Daniel Chai from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Economic forecast for 2023. This is going to be a pivotal year. Uh, we're still in the pandemic. We get that. And there are some residual effects of shutdowns and, and layoffs and a number of things that have happened over the last three years. Uh, but the Ontario Chamber has uh, done some analysis of this and uh, come out with a report uh, that basically uh, could serve as a roadmap for economic growth into 2023. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Safiani, who is the uh, Vice President of Policy with the Ontario Chamber. Uh, Daniel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Hey, listen, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, it's a fascinating report, by the way. There's some interesting ideas here. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining you're very disappointed in the Ontario government's decision yesterday to uh, uh, not continue with the uh, the staycation tax credit for the tourism industry. I, I know that I, I give them credit for initiating it, uh, and I think it was a pretty effective tool. Uh, they're not out of the woods yet, and they still could have used that. Yeah, I mean, you're uh, you're absolutely right, Bill. We did release a report on this Tuesday as well. It's been a yep. busy week for us at the Chamber, um, a comprehensive set of recommendations to help support the growth of the industry. In that report, we absolutely did call for this tax credit uh, to become permanent. So yeah, we are absolutely disappointed in today's decision and would, you know, be curious as to what informed that decision as well. Um, you know, if it was low program uptake, then let's see the data around that. From the consultations we did, this was a tax credit that was very helpful to not only directly supporting the industry, Bill, but, you know, when you encourage domestic tourism, you're supporting local art, local small businesses, local restaurants. Folks come to those communities, they spend, they dine out. Uh, so there's a ripple effect with uh, credits like these. So, uh, you know, we look forward to working with the government to, you know, better understand their thinking of this and look for other ways we can hopefully incentivize that domestic and inbound travel as well. Yeah, and I, more to come on this later, I'm sure. But I mean, and one of the big takeaways from the report you guys did that was released earlier this week was uh, the, the industry still down 35% from where they were before the pandemic. So there's a lot of work still to be done and a lot of support that's going to be needed, which, by the way, uh, segues us very nicely into this report uh, about economic growth. Uh, and I, I guess the theme here, Daniel, if I could, is is basically uh, we're looking to government here to 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 firm up the foundation to to promote economic growth. Uh, you've got a lot of business people that are ready, willing, and able to roll up their sleeves and get to work here, uh, but you need modernization of, of critical infrastructure. There's a, there's a number of things that government can and probably should be doing here. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess what we're saying here is let's, let's take a step back. We realize. You know, the last couple of years has been very reactive as a result of the pandemic. A number of programs and supports were hurriedly and in many cases appropriately rushed out the door. We haven't really had a moment, both nationally and provincially, to think about what our long-term strategy for economic growth looks like. And the economic backdrop here is rising interest rates and inflation, constrained supply chains, uh, workforce shortages, which continue to hamper uh, the ability of businesses to expand and grow. And then there's these fears of a loose, uh, recession that loom large as well. And so that's why now more than ever, it's critical for the Ontario government and the federal government, although this document speaks more to what can be done at the provincial level, to develop a coherent and coordinated strategy for long-term economic growth. And that's what we've outlined in a high-level two-page document. You know, what are those levers of growth and what are those key things that government can do right now and in the future uh, to help us along that path? And, and a lot of the stuff is stuff that you guys have mentioned before. Uh, it's all included in this report. But, I mean, you know, immigration, of course, and, and, and basically cutting through some of the red tape that still seems to exist when it comes to some of these areas uh, that uh, – that I think, you know, really underscores the need that a lot of what needs to be done is already in place. It's just not being used as efficiently as it could be. Absolutely. A lot of this is things that we've talked about together on your show over this last year. There are things that are top of mind for all of us, whether we're in the policy space or, uh, you know, as a, as a consumer trying to navigate these things. Um, and you're right, Bill. A lot of this is just about marrying together some of what's already been done. But in other aspects, it's about 
being purposeful in the government intent and policy. And also, like one of the things we're calling for here, uh, perhaps not the most uh, widely uh, accessible thing for folks, but being bold on interprovincial trade. Right now, there are barriers between us and our surrounding provinces that make labor mobility and interprovincial trade harder. And on average, this is adding 7% to the cost of goods in Canada. These are This is a self-inflicted wound. Um, and when you're talking about rising inflation and interest rates and people feeling that pinch in their wallets, you know, looking to drop those barriers interprovincially could be huge. Uh, modernizing regulation. We know we can move on uh, regulatory change very quick because the government was actually fairly agile over the last couple of years from the pandemic. So let's take those learnings. Let's apply them to help the industry grow. Um, otherwise, our productivity deficit is going to continue to grow, and we risk falling behind in the global competition uh, for talent and to attract investment uh, to our province and country. And there's another headline here in, in the report that I wanted you to touch on because you and I have had this conversation in the past. Uh, we don't live in a vacuum here in Ontario or in Canada, for that matter. Uh, other countries are, are facing some of the similar challenges, and other countries are doing things about it. And, and uh, the, the big one that comes to mind, of course, is our neighbors to the south. Uh, the Biden administration has enacted a number of different tax incentives and other programs like that to try to get business back on track. Uh, we've got to stay competitive and, and we have to study what they're doing and, and see what we can do, not necessarily to, to mirror what they're doing, but we've got to give our businesses a, that, that kind of advantage in a level playing field. Absolutely. And there's plenty more we can do to align our fiscal and tax policy uh, with a growth agenda here in the province. And there's more that the province can do as well in terms of pressuring the federal government to modernize uh, their tax system, which has been something that's been um, on the docket as well. But when you're talking about, um, you know, the global competition uh, for talent and keeping up with, uh, you know, the CHIP Act and some of the things that has happened south of the border, um, a key thing here in Ontario is going to make sure that we are investing in growth enabling infrastructure. And, you know, from roads to housing, Ontario's built environment needs to be climate resilient, energy efficient, and informed by smart planning principles to ensure that we can actually support the population and economic growth that are going to be needed for decades to come. Um, but that needs to be underpinned by, you know, the physical infrastructure, um, which includes, uh, you know, both digital and physical. Well, and we've been a little lax and, and, you know, I understand that because of pandemic, we've had other priorities and, and government money has had to be channeled off into other directions. Uh, but you're right. I mean, if we're going to start talking about supply chains and, and trying to strengthen those, uh, the tools for those supply chains, as you say, roads, uh, short sea shipping, a number of different initiatives like that, uh, are going to have to... to well, they need a shot in the arm, just about every aspect of, of that part of it, uh, to make sure that we produce goods and get goods to market in a timely fashion. Absolutely here. And, and Bill, the one thing I would stress is that this is not a document that suggests we need to spend our way to an economic growth uh, strategy. You know, improved value for money in government is paramount. 
spending must be, be effective in meeting outcomes and stimulating desired activities um, and the growth agenda that we are putting in front of them. Um, but there's a lot we can do right now at the stroke of the pen um, from a policy and regulatory standpoint to reduce barriers to growth. Uh, this doesn't cost us anything. This is outdated legislation. It's policy and regulation. It's an inefficient and overly complex tax system. It's these obstacles to interprovincial trade and labor mobility that I just mentioned. You know, these are things that uh, we don't need to wait around. There isn't a big uh, price tag attached to them, if at all. Um, and uh, we risk ignoring these uh, uh, these issues at our own detriment when it comes to economic growth in the province, which is exactly what we're going to need when we look at a year ahead like the one that we are potentially confronting. Well, and I know that one of the key elements that you've talked about at the Ontario Chamber and, and governments have talked about too is restoring consumer confidence. And I think history shows us that the best way to do that, the most effective way to do that, is 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 success breeds success. We've got to have some wins here, uh, and and that may require uh, some set of programs and some some government action on things like this. But as as we see more successes and we see some of that economic growth, it it, it tends to spur even more. Absolutely. Um, it is uh, it is absolutely critical to have both consumer confidence and business confidence. Uh, in absence of that, it's going to be very difficult to both encourage consumers to go out there and spend comfortably and businesses to invest and hire, both which are going to be critical to economic growth. And you know, one of the things that we would hope to look forward to be talking to you about early in the new year, Bill, is uh, we're in market right now, having surveyed uh, our members writ large about what their confidence is right now, looking at the year ahead, what's top of mind for them in terms of issues. And that's really going to inform our policy and advocacy agenda over the next year to ensure that the areas we're pushing on are the areas that are going to have the biggest bang for our buck in terms of um, restoring business and consumer confidence, which has, you know, understandably uh, taken a hit over the last couple of years. And I think specifically over the last couple of months uh, with some of the inflation and rising interest rates that are hitting us uh, all in various different ways, whether that's at the gas pumps or in the grocery stores. Exactly. Well, we look forward to those conversations. As always, Daniel, thank you so much for this. Uh, they can go to the Ontario Chamber webpage uh, and get more details on this. Daniel Safiani is the president of policy uh, for the uh, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.